when I was a student at Dallas Theological Seminary, I had a professor who, when he had occasion to preach, he would begin his sermons by looking at the congregation and saying, I am not a great preacher, a fact which you shall all very shortly discover for yourselves. <laughs> and uh, he used to lower the expectations a little bit. And I feel like that this morning because I have just about lost my voice. So you're about to discover that. So as I open in prayer, you can pray for me that we will make it through this together. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would be with us now so that we could see and hear from you in your word. I pray that you would open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And Father, we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus used to shock his Jewish contemporaries with his inclusivity. In fact, in many of their eyes, he was just downright scandalous. The people he kept company with were viewed as, shall we say, problematic. He was regularly accused of being a friend of tax gatherers and of sinners. And the tax gatherers, you may remember, were Jews who collaborated with the Romans to oppress the Jews. They were turncoats. They profited from the misery of God's people. The sinners were all those people who were defying God's law and thereby keeping the Jews in an exilic kind of judgment under the Romans. They were living like Gentiles, and so they were being oppressed by Gentiles. Those were the sinners. And yet Jesus would often fraternize and show mercy to these outgroups, and he would scandalize his Jewish contemporaries. On one occasion, he told the chief priests and the elders, truly I say to you that the tax gatherers and the harlots will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax gatherers and the harlots did believe him, and you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. And so Jesus taught that group identity doesn't keep anyone out of the kingdom, but unbelief certainly will. In John 4, Jesus asks a woman, he's with the woman at the well, and he asks her to give him a drink of water. And she looks at him and she marvels, saying to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus is not supposed to be talking to her. She has three marks against her. She is a woman, she is a Samaritan, and she is sexually immoral, we find out. And in Jesus' day, those were three marks against her. If there was intersectionality in the ancient world, this would be it. 
She had intersecting lines of deprivileged status, and yet Jesus sits with her, confronts her with her sin, and shows mercy to her. And she believes in him, and from her innermost being flow rivers of living water. In showing mercy to her, Jesus also shows that the old social distinctions, which ordinarily put people in the out-group, as far as the Jews were concerned, he shows that those social distinctions do not prevent a person from being a disciple of Jesus, from being included in the kingdom. None of those identity markers matter. All that matters is whether you repent and believe in Jesus. I think that's why you see the apostles saying things like what Paul said in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. I'll look at verses 27 and 29 too. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither, neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Those who are in Christ are so by faith and by faith alone. Are you a Gentile? No problem. Are you a woman? No problem. Are you a slave? No problem. Just believe in Jesus and you are in. That's what the apostles taught. And you become a partaker of the rich root of Israel and become an heir of the promises of Abraham through Christ by faith. But if it's true that one gets in by faith, what does that mean about me once I'm in? What if I get saved and I'm the only saved person in my family, in my Gentile family? What if my spouse isn't even a Christian when I become a Christian? Can I really follow Christ if the closest person to me in my life couldn't care any less about Christ? And if it's a marriage, should I stay in that marriage? What if God saves me but doesn't save all of my worldly coworkers? Or doesn't save my overbearing boss? I've still got to go to work every week, and they are awfully worldly people that I have to deal with. They don't give a rip about Christ, and yet I'm trying to follow Christ. But all these other people, without even trying, are tempting me to turn back to what I was before. Should I stay in that situation, or should I look for something else? What if I get saved, but the year's not 2018, but 1818? And I'm not a white man, but a black man enslaved to a white plantation owner in South Carolina. Can I follow Christ when I have to suffer the indignity and violence of chattel slavery? Can I follow Jesus in that situation? Or must I somehow change my situation before I can be a faithful follower of Jesus? If you think that these social characteristics can keep you out of the kingdom, then you might be tempted to think that you have to change them in order to stay in the kingdom. But Paul and the apostles are saying, no, you don't. 
If male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave-free distinctions cannot keep you from coming in, then neither can they keep you from staying in. I want you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through 24. Up until this point in chapter 7, Paul's been talking about marriage and divorce. And in verses 8 through 16, he made the case that believing spouses should not divorce their unbelieving spouses. Why? Because the power of the gospel is such that the unbelieving spouse will not taint the believing spouse. Rather, the believing spouse will sanctify the unbelieving spouse. Therefore, the believing spouse needs to stay in that marriage covenant. Now, in this paragraph that's before us this morning, in verses 17 through 24, Paul explains the deeper principle that's undergirding what he just told to them. Believers are not supposed to abandon their lives when they get saved. On the contrary, they are supposed to remain in their lives for the sake of the gospel. If the gospel is true, and if you have the Spirit you won't be compromised by your social situation, but you very well likely will transform it. And so the principle that Paul is trying to express to these Corinthians, they're first-generation Christians, right? They're, they're saved in all different kinds of circumstances. And he's saying to them, when you get saved, here's the principle. You need to remain in the situation in which you were called. You need to remain in the situation in which you were called. That's the principle that's written over this whole paragraph. But what he's going to do in this paragraph is he's going to give us um, three different aspects to this. He's going to give us a statement of the principle. He's going to give us an application of that principle. And then he's going to give us an exception to the principle. So in verse 17, it's a statement of the principle. Verses 18 to 20 is an application of the principle. And then in verses 21 to 24, it's an exception to the principle. Now, his first statement of the principle is in verse 17. So everybody look at verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Notice that this paragraph is structured kind of like a Big Mac. Uh, you know how a Big Mac has three pieces of bread, right? Uh, you got three pieces of bread. You got filler in between each of the pieces of bread. That's what this paragraph is like. The bread appears in verses 17, 20, and 24, all of which are basically saying the same thing. You need to remain in the condition in which you were called. Now, we looked at verse 17, but look at verses 20 and 24. Let each man remain in that condition in which he was called. Verse 24. Brethren, let each man remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Now, even though the principle, I think, is repeated in all three of those verses, the fullest statement of the principle is in the first instance of it in verse 17. Notice what Paul says, and I want to read to you the rendering from the New American Standard Bible. It says this, Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner, let him walk. Paul says, in this manner, let him walk. Which you know, walking is Paul's metaphor for the way that you conduct your life. And he's saying, you're supposed to conduct your life in a certain way. 
What way is that? Well, there are two things he identifies. Number one, he says, the way you're supposed to conduct your life is as the Lord has assigned to each one. Which means this, God has given to every person an assignment. It's an assignment deriving from the sovereign purposes of God and designed specifically for each person whom he calls. Well, that's great. God has a plan for my life. He has an assignment for me. How do I know what my assignment is supposed to be? That's the second thing. Look at the next phrase. As God has called each. Now, when Paul talks about calling, he's talking about God's call to us to save us. It's a calling which is efficacious and to which we respond in faith. If you are a believer, you are called and you have responded in faith to that internal calling of the Spirit. So as God has called each, that phrase means it's referring to the situation of your life at the time of your calling. And so that situation is your assignment from God. You're not required to change your social situation in order to follow Christ. Now, for some people, a part of their life situation, a part of the sin that they're walking in, does have to be changed. That's a part of repentance. But there are all manner of morally indifferent social situations that you don't have to change in order to follow Christ. You are supposed to recognize your social situation in that sense as a strategic opportunity given to you by Christ for his kingdom and glory. You weren't put where you were by accident. You didn't get saved where you were by accident. You have an assignment. You've been put there. The most intimate of social situations, obviously, is the one that Paul has been discussing up until this point, and which I think he still has in mind, that most intimate of social situations is marriage. And marriage is, in fact, what Paul's been discussing up until this point. We'll say what we said last time we looked at, at, at the previous paragraph. You don't have to leave your marriage in order to follow Christ. You are supposed to stay in your marriage, even if you're married to an unbeliever, in order to follow Christ. And Paul says that this principle is what he teaches in all the churches. I'm not giving you, like, this is the Corinthian rule. This is the rule for everybody. This is how God treats everybody. Some of you have heard me tell the story before of a situation I encountered in a church uh, that I used to go to. I had a friend who was divorced and who was serving with the youth group in that church, and he was on fire for God and kind of a, a prototypical fired-up youth volunteer. He, he was personally a great encouragement to me and absolutely committed to his volunteer work with, with the youth at the church. And over time, he struck up this friendship with one of the adult female volunteers within the group. And they ended up spending a lot of time together, got really close to each other. They formed a bond over their interest and love for the, the youth ministry their hearts just seemed to be sewn together in every single way. The only problem was that she was married. And yet, in spite of that, they decided that they wanted to be together and that she should leave her husband in order to be with my friend. 
And so I go to his home one day to confront them, to confront him about this. And I sat in his living room and I told him that what he was contemplating was completely immoral. God hates divorce. It's biblically out of bounds for him to be pursuing a married woman and for her to pursue a divorce to marry him, which is what they were planning. And guess how he responded to me? I was pointing to scripture. He pointed to what God had told him personally. He claimed that God had told him and her that they were supposed to be together. And he said this, he said, because her husband wasn't walking with the Lord and had no interest in the ministry, the things of God, like they did, her husband was a drag on her. And she needed to leave that situation so that she could go be with a godly man who would encourage her walk with Christ rather than hindering it. I'm, I'm not making this up. Not only was he transgressing Christ's teaching about divorce and marriage, he was also flouting Paul's instruction about remaining in the condition in which you were called. Paul doesn't lay down this principle for no reason. He's already explained why believers are to stay in difficult marriages. Chapter 7, verses 14 through 16. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they're holy. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? You don't leave your marriage in order to save yourself. You stay in your marriage in order to save your marriage. Your unbelieving spouse doesn't defile you. You will sanctify your unbelieving spouse. And that happens by being a faithful gospel influence in the life of your spouse. But you can't be that for your spouse if you leave your spouse. And so you remain in the condition in which you're called. Paul's re-articulating the principle, I think, because he still has marriage in mind. And we need to re-articulate it because some of you in this room are in difficult marriages. And there are some of you who feel like you are ready to give up on your marriage vows and turn away. That is not how a disciple of Jesus deals with a difficult marriage. Following Christ means following his commands to love your spouse even when they are hard to love. And even when you don't feel like doing it. And the reason is because Christ uses that obedience to draw more people, including difficult spouses, into the sphere of his mercy and grace. You don't leave a marriage to save yourself. You stay in your marriage to, stay, to save your marriage. So if you were called in such a situation, that is your assignment from God. You don't bolt your assignment for something that looks better. You sanctify your assignment because that's, that's what God has called you to. You embrace it. But Paul is saying in verse 17 that this principle has wider application than, than marriage. It doesn't just only apply to marriage. It applies to all manner of social distinctions, doesn't it? So he gives a statement of the principle in verse 17, but then he moves on to an application of the principle in verses 18 through 20. 
Everybody look at verse 18. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of his circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. Look what Paul's doing here. He's applying the principle, remain in the situation in which you were called, he's applying that principle to a socio-religious difference. The difference between Jews and Gentiles. Jews were marked by circumcision. Gentiles were not. Paul says that those who were circumcised don't have to remove the marks of their circumcision in order to be like the Gentiles so that they can follow Christ. It may be, I don't know, Paul doesn't say, but it may be that there are some Gentiles who despise Jewish, Jewish culture and customs. But you don't have, Paul's saying, you don't have to forsake those Jewish culture and customs in order to be a Christian or vice versa. Some people look at this text and they wonder, maybe you've wondered this, what Paul means by removing the marks of circumcision. Isn't that, after all, kind of a, a permanent thing? Well, believe it or not, there were actually in the ancient world devices that were used to enable a man to draw the skin forward in order to remove the marks of his Jewishness. They existed. Why would they remove those marks? I mean, who sees that anyway? Well, we know um, also that in the history of the Jews, a time, a period right before the time that Paul wrote this, there was a, a time in the, in the, you can read it in the, are y'all familiar with the first Maccabees? Anybody here Catholic in, in their life before? Uh, if you were a Catholic, you, you know there are these books that come in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Catholics view them as kind of quasi-canonical. We don't think they're canonical, but they do have some important history there. And one piece of important history there in 1 Maccabees uh, covers that period after Alexander the Great con conquered Palestine. He, you know, when he conquered the Jews, and the Greeks came into Palestine. And it says that eventually they opened up a Greek gymnasium in Jerusalem. And they did, in, in those days, they did sports differently than we do today. Today, guys compete while clothed, and then they shower unclothed. In those days, they competed unclothed, and I don't know what they did about showers, but um, <clears throat> they competed with no clothes on. And, and so the point was that a person's circumcision was evident to everybody in the gymnasium. There were at least some con context in which people could see. And there was a low point in Israel's history when some of these Jewish men sought to remove the marks of their circumcision in order to fit in with the Greeks who had conquered them. Now, there aren't any indications that these kinds of Jew-Gentile tensions were present in Paul's times of writing, but I think Paul is just simply saying that there's no need to fret either way about circumcision. Even though circumcision had been an ongoing sign and seal of God's covenant with Israel, they don't have to change their ethnic identification in order to follow Christ. Why? Look at verse 19. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Now, Paul's Jewish readers might have been shocked to see this. To read those words, circumcision doesn't mean anything. That's a staggering thing to say in a Jewish context. 
But he says it. But they might also have been puzzled by what he said because he says it doesn't count for anything, but what does count is keeping the commandments of God. Well, isn't circumcision one of the commandments of, of God in the Old Testament? In Moses' law in Genesis 17? Yes, it is. But Paul is obviously saying that it is not a command that obtains within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we know in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council, the apostles decided that Gentile converts need not be circumcised in order to be saved. So circumcision is not the sign and seal of the new covenant. Baptism is the sign of that. Circumcision, therefore, is neither here nor there for the faithful in Christ Jesus. But obeying Christ's commands is everything for us. Now, this little observation here has enormous social implications. It would have had enormous social implications for the Jews and the Gentiles in the church reading this. It means that a Jew doesn't have to leave the marks of his Jewishness behind in order to follow Christ. Neither does a Gentile have to leave the marks of his Gentileness behind in order to be a Christian. Those ethnically implicated social distinctions no longer matter. And here's the thing. If the ethnically implicated distinctions between Jew and Gentile no longer matter, then no ethnically implicated social distinctions matter in Christ. Because what God is doing through Christ transcends those differences. And so he says in verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. You could stay just like you are. It may be ethnically implicated, but it's not ethically implicated. You can just remain just like you are. Last week I heard a man named H.B. Charles preach at the Together for the Gospel conference that was held here in Louisville. Y'all know who H.B. Charles is? H.B. Uh, Charles is the pastor of the Shiloh Metropolitan Baptist Church, which is a large African-American congregation in Jacksonville, Florida. And um, I've gotten to know him over the last year and a half or so, just a little bit. But if you listen to H.B. Charles's message last week, what you heard was a straight-up Bible exposition. It was just straight gospel. Every time I've heard him preach... That's what he does. In other words, HB is essentially doing the same thing that we're trying to do here every single week. Do you think that there are differences between the way we do worship services at Kenwood Baptist Church and the way that they do worship, is, worship services at the Shiloh Metropolitan Baptist Church? You better believe there are. Do you think there are differences between the way H.B. preaches and the way that I preach? <laughs> Don't tempt me. If I try, if I try to preach like H.B. preaches, first of all, I couldn't do it. But if I tried it, I would look and sound ridiculous. And if he tried to sound like me, that would, I guarantee that would look and sound ridiculous too, but for entirely different reasons. But do you think that the differences of preaching style or worship services are related to different cultural settings and backgrounds? I think they are. We could do a whole sermon on that. 
HB's a much better preacher than I am, but here's the freeing thing. We preach the same gospel. We both preach expositionally. HB could preach right here in this pulpit, and he wouldn't have to change a thing in order to be faithful. He doesn't have to become white to be a faithful preacher. I don't have to become black to become a faithful preacher. Why? Because it's not our skin color or cultural differences that unite us. We are one in Jesus Christ, and our differences are a glory, not a curse. And our unity in the gospel and in the big things that matter are a glory, not a curse. And so I say this, and I mean it. HB is my people, and I have more in common with HB than I do with 10,000 white preachers who don't believe the gospel and who don't preach the Bible. I'm just pointing to that because I was thinking about him this week. But here's why I'm bringing this up. There may be a divide between white and black out there, but there must never be a divide between white and black in here. Why? Because as far as the kingdom is concerned, white and black don't mean anything, only keeping the commandments of God. Our unity is not in skin color or in cultural heritage. And perhaps more importantly, and this is, this is really important, our division is not in skin color or cultural heritage. In this church and in every church, there will be occasions where we have to divide. And some people will go out from us. But it will not be over this issue unless we are going apostate. Our division is not in skin color or in cultural heritage. Our unity is in Christ, who has purchased a people for himself from every tribe and nation and people and tongue. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 18, Now God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. And if God is bringing white and black and Greek and Jew and male and female together, who are you to gainsay that? What you get to do is celebrate that. We are all in here in our diversity because God put us here. And he intends for the diversity of races and of cultural heritages to be, in one sense, transcended, in the sense that it causes divisions out there. We transcend the divisions in here. But in another sense, he means for those diversity of races and cultural heritages to be ennobled by our unity in Christ. Which is why we deplore racism and racial strife, which is so prevalent around us, but which we must transcend in here through Christ. In fact, the only way that racial strife can be transcended anywhere is through Christ. And we are supposed to bear witness to that by the way we love one another in here, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, black or white, black or brown, or whatever. You don't have to become the other to be faithful to Jesus, but you can celebrate and love within our differences. So Paul gives a statement of the principle in verse 17, an application of the principle to Jew and Greek, ethnic distinction, 
verses 18 to 20. And he gives an exception to the principle in verses 21 to 24. Now, I titled this point an exception to the principle, but it's actually another application of the principle with an exception included, okay? But I wanted to keep it parallel, so you know how I do things here. But uh, here it is. What's the principle? The principle, you remember, is remain in the situation in which you were called. But now Paul's going to apply that to slaves. Verse 21. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. Now, I, in this text, I actually don't prefer the ESV rendering of the Greek term doulos, which um, they are rendering here as bondservant. They use that term, I think, because they want to distinguish uh, Roman slavery from the kind of slavery that you and I usually think of when we think of slavery, which is the kind of slavery that existed in America prior to the Civil War. And so they want us to distinguish those things, and there are important differences, and, um, and I recognize that. But I still think the term is best rendered in the traditional way as, as slave. And if you want to make clarifications beyond that, just tell people that Roman slavery was different from American slavery. I, I, it, this is slavery here. I think it's important to translate it that way because what the two institutions have in common is what's most impor important. In both systems, a slave's master has absolute power over him. Roman slavery wasn't race-based, nor was it based in every case on kidnapping people like it was in American slavery. But it was nevertheless slavery. We know that in first century Corinth, about a, th about a third of the city were slaves. Another third of the city were freed slaves. And another third of the city were born free. We don't know the exact composition of the Corinthian congregation, but it's probably safe to assume that all three gr groups were represented there. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be a slave in that context? If you were a slave, you labored under the absolute control of your master. You were the property of your master and had to do whatever your master told you to do. If you failed to do what your master told you to do, he could use coercive violence to make you do what he told you to do. In Roman slavery, the, the master had the power of life and death over his slave. Which means if you were a slave, your master could take your life if he wanted because you were his property. Now, can you imagine what it was like to be on that very bottom rung of the social ladder in the Roman, Greco-Roman world? You get saved, and now you're coming to church when you can. And you're sitting in a congregation with people who don't, who some of them may be slaves like you, but some of them are one or two up. They don't have all the disadvantages that you have. And it might be really easy to question and ask, how am I supposed to be a follower of Christ when I'm enslaved to this guy over here, this pagan over here? You know, if you were in a marriage, a difficult marriage, you had a choice to get out. If you were a slave, you didn't have a choice. How am I supposed to be a follower of Christ if I'm enslaved to this guy over here? Is it possible to be a faithful Christian and a slave? Paul means to tell them that in their situation, their situation did not prevent them from following Jesus. 
He says, if you're a slave, don't let that trouble you one bit. You can still follow Jesus. But then he adds something crucial that I think is here now the exception to the principle. Remember the principle? Remain in this condition in which you were called. If you're in a bad marriage, remain in that condition. You circumcised, remain in that condition. But now he's coming to slavery. What does he say? Verse 21. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of that opportunity. In Roman slavery, there were sometimes opportunities for slaves to be freed. Sometimes there were opportunities for slaves to even buy their own freedom. Some slaves made money and were able to save it and were able to eventually purchase their own freedom. That's why you had a whole class of people called freedmen in the Roman Empire. They were former slaves. They were all over the place too. So Paul does not say, as he said about circumcision, remain in your situation. No, he says, if you can get out of your enslavement, then do that. I think Paul is hinting here, hinting here that slavery is not a morally neutral institution. You sometimes hear people say that the Bible endorses slavery. I, when we um, studied 1 Timothy 6, I gave you my view on that. I refer you back to that message. That's a wrong uh, view of things in, in my understanding of Scripture. I think this is one of the texts that shows us that Paul is hinting at the fact that slavery is not a morally neutral institution. It's better to be free than to be a slave. But even if one finds himself a slave with no prospects for freedom, that doesn't prevent him at all from following Jesus. Why is that? Well, look at verse 22. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. This means that the freedom Christ gives enables slaves to transcend their servitude, even in the midst of their servitude. They are not defined by their enslavement. They are defined and shaped by the freedom that is the new birthright of the children of God. And those who are not enslaved but free... Paul is saying, don't be arrogant about that or boastful because in a real sense, you are a slave. All Christians are set free from sin, but we're not all set free from all masters. We just change masters, don't we? We were once enslaved to sin, but now we become slaves to Jesus. And in that sense, all of us are slaves. But look what Paul says in verse 23. You were bought with a price... Do not become bondservants of men. I think it's becoming really clear here. Paul is not high on slavery as an institution. He's already said, if you have the opportunity to be free, take the opportunity. Now he's issuing a command. Do not become slaves of men. And I think he likely means this in both the spiritual sense and the literal sense. I don't think you have to pick between those two. Literally, he's saying, don't sell yourself into slavery. If you're free, don't do it. It's not good for you. But he's also saying, don't become enslaved spiritually to any person. Only be enslaved to Christ. The only slavery that is good slavery is the kind in which the master is perfect. Be a slave to Christ and to him alone. That's the good kind. And then he restates the principle again in verse 24. So brothers... 
In whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. That last little two words there may be the most important two words. Why is it that you can remain in the condition in which you were called? Because you're not forsaken by God in that condition. God is with you in that condition. He's not sending you to an assignment. He's going with you to your assignment. That's how your assignment gets sanctified. It's because he's with you. Some people read this and they wonder why Paul didn't say more against the institution of slavery. The answer is simply because this, this is not a social justice memo. We, we have to be really careful here not to read our democratic context into the Roman Empire. In our context, we ask these questions because we live in a context in which we can protest and redress our government. That, that's not something that you did with the Roman Empire, okay? When slaves rebelled, they, they would crucify them. There was no recourse here. You didn't get out of picket sign. Paul is simply trying, what, so, so what's Paul doing here? This is not a, a, a manifesto for social change. That's not what this is about. Paul is simply trying to tell his brothers and sisters in Christ who are slaves that they can follow Jesus as slaves. Their enslavement may make them low in the kingdom of men, but it does not make them low in the kingdom of God. They are the Lord's freedmen. Well, what does that mean for us? Well, if that is true for slaves who were at the bottom of the social classes of their day, then it is definitely true of every single person sitting in this room. There is no person in this room whose social position is too low for faithfulness to Christ. You may think that you're too low for a congregation that you walk into and it looks different than what you're used to. You may think that, but you would be wrong. It does not matter how poor you are, how low born you are, what your family connections are, how far down the social totem pole you are. If you trust in Christ alone in his death and resurrection on your behalf, then you have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you and you're us. And even if you remain in a lowly social standing, as far as the world is concerned, for the rest of your life, it doesn't make any difference in the kingdom. In fact, it may enhance your standing in the kingdom. If you can better your situation, great. By all means, do that. But if you don't have the opportunity to do that, it's neither here nor there in Christ's kingdom. You can still be a faithful follower of Jesus. And that's the point, isn't it? In this church, we are supposed to be a picture of what the kingdom is. Where there's neither male nor female, female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, but we're all one in Christ. And when we are living like that, when we are loving one another like that, when we are embracing all the diversity that God brings to us, we are bearing witness to a world that is broken, that God is fixing things in here. And that the solution to the world that is broken is what we have in here. Let's pray that God would make us that. Father, help us not to lie to the world about the kingdom. 
by failing to let your righteous rule have its way in our congregation. Father, we are all one in Christ. The implications of that are massive. And I'm sure that I and my brothers and sisters in Christ here have not realized all of those implications yet. And I'm sure that there are ways that we are not walking in the implications yet. So where there are social distinctions by which we are acting in partiality towards one another, I pray you would free us. I pray you wouldn't make us make, help us not to make one another feel like they need to change in the areas that are neither here nor there. But Lord, I pray for a marvelous unity in Christ to spring up in this congregation that overflows and transforms not only us, but also this community. So we pray and invoke the Holy Spirit of God to do his work among us. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.